And so I learned, while researching this book, that Chester Arthur was a man of great contradictions. A born follower whose lack of leadership qualities accidentally made him president. A sharp dresser who gained political prominence by purchasing cheap uniforms for the Union Army. A lifelong party hack whose greatest achievement was civil service reform. And, in short, a fascinating subject for a biography. Before I sign your first editions of my book, Chester Arthur, An American Life, I'll take a few questions. Yes? Um, you realize this bookstore, The Stirring Pages, specializes in cookbooks, right? Of course. The owner, Ms. Ann Platts, invited me in because I include the recipes for several of Mr. Arthur's favorite entrees at the legendary Delmonico's restaurant. He was especially fond of oyster-stuffed pheasant. Oyster-stuffed pheasant? 99% of the people in the United States can't afford oyster-stuffed pheasant. And in 1875, 99.5% of the people in the United States couldn't afford oyster-stuffed pheasant. So we've made some progress. Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents... The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History, for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 21, Chester A. Arthur. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. We are still here with James McRae. Say hi, James. Hello. Dr. Chelsea Denode. Hello. And Dr. Matthew Norman. Hello. And our writers of wrongs, Mr. Paul. Hello. Mr. Patrick. Is I. Mr. Tommy. Hello. And Ms. Sandy. Hello. And Mr. Joe. And at September 20th, 1881, America says and hello <laughs> to Hi. President Chester Arthur. Chester Allen Arthur. Owner mm -hmm. of the undisputed best facial hair of any president. Right. Oh, you see, I still am in more with the mutton chops, but okay. It's, I, I... it's mutton chops into a mustache, Joe. <laughs> you, how can you beat Chester A. Arthur? Come uh, on. All right, all right. My <laughs> favorite factoids about Arthur are, one, he was called the dude president. <laughs> In 1880s speak, you know, uh, referred to a well-dressed man. Every girl's crazy about a well-dressed man. And he was also, you know, quite the high liver. He had regular tables at all the best New York restaurants. And two, he resisted, and this would never, and it was never a problem again. He resisted some, the rabid anti-Asian immigrant fervor at the time by vetoing the Chinese Exclusion Act. 
or actually it was the Chinese Restriction Act in 1882. He thought that was racist, probably because it was racist. And Arthur never held a single elected office before he became vice president. He was pure hack. Yep. <laughs> From New York. A New Yorker who never held office to become president. Patrick? <laughs> Patrick? Yes. That's your cue. Never. Uh, that never happened ever again. Thank you. <laughs> I think Although it just... it I think Arthur is yet again one of those ones who shows us that uh, you know there's a popular uh, popular joke that you should pick a vice president who's completely objectionable so that no one will hope that you get assassinated but that seems to be the opposite of what happens because it's always the absolute least popular (laughs) vice presidents who end up becoming the uh, who who end up seceding or in the case of Arthur the complete and total non-entity he and Gar, he and Garfield met when they were joined when they were joined together on the ticket. If I'm remembering correctly, they had no prior personal relationship. So, again, I mean, because because this is sort of the era, I think, where the whole myth of the smoke-filled room comes into play. Like there had to be big wheels. There had to be power brokers. Like who were the people picking? Gar- I mean, Chester Conkling. Okay, Conkling. well, Chester Conkling was one. I know Hannah in Ohio from Cleveland was one of the major power brokers. And even though Arthur's from Vermont, we do have this weird clutch of Ohioans. And part of the reason for that is because Northern Ohio was a was central to a lot of the robber barons, like you know, Joe Rock- Rockefeller, Rockefeller, and Mark Hanna. Mark Hanna. Um, yeah, um, I think it's perhaps useful to think about it as being kind of a patchwork of regional power networks, oftentimes where you have kind of a a political machine or political operation that has kind of a central node, who's kind of the person who is widely seen as, as having the most power in a given region. And then those people oftentimes working against each other as they're trying to outmaneuver each other to have more power in the overall party structure are kind of horse trading and maneuvering against each other, or, you know, making temporary alliances with one another to try to see that their guy, the guy that they feel that they control uh, is the person who's put on the ticket or is the person who is put in various federal appointments Although I think it's it's interesting and, and perhaps just kind of shows us the kind of human nature, how often the people that these guys put on the ticket, they're like, oh, yeah, we control this guy. And then they end up being total rogues and they don't do anything that they're told to do. Mr. President, please, Roscoe, it's Chester, old Chet, the Cheddar Man. You've known me since our New York machine days. I'm not too big for my britches. Well... <laughs> I never thought I'd have Roscoe Conkling calling me Mr. President. <laughs> Without you, nobody would have even called me Mr. Collector. That's what I needed to talk to you about, Chester. This Pendleton Act? Are you sure the civil service needs reforming? It's done so well by you. 
you know, the spoil system has had its day, but the political winds are changing. Now, what were you thinking for the next course? Uh, squab stuffed with duck or the other way around? <laughs> Why not both? We can compare them side by side. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, and not to be rude, may I ask why Jim Brady is dining with us this evening? I thought this was to be a political discussion. Well, Diamond Jim, I owe him from a bet. You've been betting on horse racing. <laughs> nah, we had an over-under on when President Garfield would bite it. <laughs> I still can't believe you thought he'd make it to October. What can I say? I'm forever an optimist. Now, speaking of Mr. Garfield, continuing his push for a merit-based civil service would honor his memory. Chester, the spoils system works. It has since the founding of this country by George Washington and his friend's nephews. Yeah, but there's too much room for corruption and graft. And graft has no place in politics. It belongs in railroad construction and horse racing and the stock market and sometimes Broadway. Uh, but, Chester, you've benefited from the spoil system. Oh, have I? Where did you get that elegant cutaway? Oh, I confiscated it back when I was collector at the Port Authority. And those spats? Also a Port Authority find. And that diamond stick in? Now that was a gift. From whom? A man I promoted when I was quartermaster of the army. Then why the sudden change of heart? Why, you wouldn't even be president if it weren't for moiety. I think it's pronounced Gateau. Gentlemen, is this really a time to talk politics? We should be talking about food. We've already eaten three dozen oysters, six crabs, and green turtle soup. And I've just watched you finish a sirloin steak the size of a carriage wheel. <sighs> now, entrees. Garçon! Yes, sir. We'd like to put in for the next course. I think uh, three lobsters, three chickens, three squabs, three T-bone steaks, three pork chops, and three lamb chops. Uh, will you gentlemen be eating anything? Oh, how about a few oyster and macaroni pies? They make an excellent oyster and macaroni pie here. Oh, I used to have them all the time when I hosted dinners here on your behalf, Roscoe. And I will have a coffee, thanks. Black. These spoil sports have determined to spoil my appetite. So that's three lobsters, three chickens, three squabs, three T-bone steaks, three pork chops and three lamb chops, a few oyster and macaroni pies for the president, and one coffee. Black. For the spoiled appetite. <laughs> See? See, he remembered that all without writing down a word. That is what the Pendleton Act is all about, finding competent men who are good at their jobs. If that's all it's about, then why outlaw assessments? You know, I made a good deal of income from those kickbacks, and now that nobody's paying the Republican Party of New York, my coffers will soon be bare. Uh, well, what about being an associate justice? Is it a no-show job? Uh, no. Yes. Maybe you'll have to make money the honest way, shorting the railroad stock prices. Um, I'll loan you my ledger if you need tips. Really? Sure. Take a look. It's in a book. The Reading Railroad, which I shorted for $1.25 I could go twice as high. I still say Pendleton goes too far. You're cow-towing to the Democrats, and we won the war. Now, times are changing, Ross. From time to time, we'll have to break bread with the Democrats. I'm stewing over it, but I suppose you're right. 
will even have to make sacrifices, like ensuring current civil servants can't be removed for political reasons. It's just a... Wait. Current civil servants? Like the ones appointed by the Republican Party? Oh, that's right. Yes, a competent civil service means job security, free from the whims of the voters or whomever the president might be, even if it's a Democrat. That's very clever, Chester. The student has become the master. Oh, you think you're the master? You barely escaped being shot by your mistress's husband. Kate thought I was the better man for the job. Who wants dessert? Uh, we haven't talked a lot about uh, civil service reform. Let's do. Okay. Yeah. And it's my favorite topic, actually. No, I. True, though. I mean, it's all right. Okay. And I, I should know this because I actually teach this in government, but the the landmark Civil Service Reform Act, it's named after somebody. George. Uh, it's the Pendleton, Pendleton Act. Pendleton Act. It's the Pendleton Act. And this was uh, passed in the Hayes administration. No, this was, that was after the Hayes administration. Okay. Yeah. It was 1983. Firing Chester Arthur was like a big triumph of the Hayes administration. <laughs> that was kind of shows you the futility of reform. You whack down the mole here and it pops up in the White House, you know, four <laughs> years later. Because from what I understand about Arthur, it just meant he could go back to the steakhouses in New York City. Wow, was he punished. <laughs> well, I have a question about... Go ahead, finish that. No, I'm... No, I, I don't need to go off on a long That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. this patronage of the civil service. But. Goodness, what an enormous trunk. Really? I've been told I've lost weight since becoming president. I meant that steamer in the corner, but never mind. I'm delighted you agreed to have tea with me, Chet. And I'm delighted to have tea with you, Kate. But you must admit, I had no choice when you announced that you were coming to visit me in the executive mansion. Oh, I suppose that was rather forward of me. But you know how heartsick I've been since you had that silly patronage dispute with our friend. Indeed. And how is my former patron, Roscoe Conkling? Oh, Roscoe Conkles quite well, I assure you. Roscoe Conkles. <laughs> Oh, I get it. Oh. <laughs> you do love your jokes, Kate. Except perhaps for my husband. Anyway, Chet, why must you prevent Roscoe from selecting a political ally to occupy your former position as collector for the Port of New York? Because, dear Kate, it's the most important job in government, and the reformers will have my head if I allow an unqualified man to occupy it. Then support Roscoe's return to the Senate, and he'll give your head back to you. Must you be such a hypocrite, Chet? You were vastly unqualified when you served as collector. Kate, whatever I do, I do it vastly. Before you plead Conkling's case, let me show you what's in the steamer. I had it shipped here from New York when I heard you were coming. A gift? How thoughtful. You've always been such a gentleman, Chet. Yeah, and there's my problem. Uh, you may come out now, Miss Sand. Thank God. If I wasn't a hunchback before, I am now. You bought me a cripple? You can't buy people anymore, sugar. Slavery has been banned, remember? Back when the Republican Party was led by honorable men and not 
criminals like your paramour? You're rather impudent for someone so poor. She couldn't afford a train ticket to Washington. I could buy the whole railroad if I wanted, sweetheart. But Mr. Arthur wanted to keep my arrival a secret. Your presence in the executive mansion is enough of a scandal. Mrs. Kate Chase Sprague of the Rhode Island Spragues. May I introduce Miss Julia Sand of the New York Sands? The New York Sands. Are you the daughter of Kristen Sand, the Gaslight Company president? Don't try to gaslight me, dear, or else your husband will receive a telegram about how the senator is conkling you. Chet, why am I being subjected to this? Our Miss Sand has offered to serve as my dwarf. I don't see how she qualifies. Yes, she's misshapen and stupid, but she's of average size. That's dwarf, as in the truth teller in a royal court. I guess they don't teach history in Ohio schools. Chet, can't we have a civilized conversation? Yes, but we shouldn't. I can refuse Roscoe, but I can never say no to a lady. And since Conkling couldn't find one, he sent you. <laughs> that was rude, Miss Sand. Keep it up, please, while I pour the tea. Uh, how many lumps of sugar do you ladies take? I never take lumps. Miss Sand, Chet would still be a fat, jolly New York bon vivant if it weren't for Roscoe Conkling. And I have enough lumps. Listen, Toots, Mr. Arthur may look like Falstaff, but he's actually Henry V. But I, uh, I only have one dead wife. Wrong monarch, sir. Anyway, lovey, Mr. Arthur needs to forget his old friends for the sake of the country. That's what you value in a president? Disloyalty? That's pretty rich, coming from someone who treats her marriage certificate like a handkerchief. Oh, <laughs> now who wants a bonbon? Oh. I'll pass. But the men who helped you become president certainly deserve a treat, Chet. Then let him bake a cake for Charles Guiteau. He's not a political hack anymore. A president wears many hats. Oh, and I do. Uh, a boater for the carriage, a bowler brim when I'm walking to the train, a slouch after I board. Miss Sand, your hero is just a corrupt official. And now that he's in the presidential mansion, he must improve. Indeed, I've already hired a decorator. Chet, please. Look, Miss Sand and the ointment, I'm sure you think you know everything, lying on your fainting couch and reading the newspapers, but an ordinary citizen like you just doesn't understand how politics works. And listen, Mrs. Bubonic Sprague, if you can't explain it to an ordinary citizen like me, then you're doing it wrong. Oh, bravo, little woman. You reformers. Do you really think anything can get done without trading favors? Trading favors? I like that. When the working girls down the Tenderloin trade favors, they end up in jail. When you trade favors, you end up in the president's study. Oh, are you so pure and holy that you deny a woman the one way she's allowed to exercise power? So stop sleeping with senators and support suffrage. Oh, indeed. You know, women's suffrage is God's will. 
Oh, is he speaking to you directly, Chet? Women's suffrage is in the Bible. God told Eve, and I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Forget it. This is useless. It's impossible to reason with morons. By tomorrow, your sordid past as a bagman for the Republican Party will be all over the newspapers. Hmm. Married mistress of crooked senator accuses president of wrongdoing. Quite a mouthful for the newsboys. <laughs> Miss Sand, how would you like to be first lady? Only if I can do it without holding any balls. Oh, in that case, I rescind the offer. And it also strikes me as you were talking, James, again, one of the things that happens with urbanization apparent is party affiliation. Like how do presidents become presidents if they're not campaigning? Well, there are political parties. And so how, and so if the, you know, if the local political party says, this is our person that, and you've got newspapers that identify with particular political parties, well, there's how, Votes get tabulated and collected. Potential for corruption? Eh, maybe. But um, like you said, we, we, we are getting this nationalized culture, and it's interesting how it sort of spreads in different levels. And there's a certain amount of shared, sort of shared parallel experiences, even if what's happening in New York is different from what's happening in San Francisco, is different from what's happening in Cleveland, is different from what's happening in New Orleans. It can also be a bridge to sectional reconciliation between native-born white people in the North and native-born white people in the South. And you can even see this at veterans, Civil War veterans reunions and monument dedications where speakers will say things like, well, in the South, you have your quote-unquote Negro problem, and, and we in the North have our problem with immigrants. Especially, you know, one of my, not that this is Chelsea's favorite book club, but one of the <laughs> best books that I read during my grad school days was, oh gosh, I can't think of his first name. Help me, Dr. Norm, Rodiger. Rodiger. Yeah, see, Dr. Norm knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> How do Irish immigrants then become eventually viewed as being white? Right, right. So this idea that, that, that whiteness is a spectrum and not a racial category, right? So Itali like once the Irish become white, then Italians are the new non-white immigrants and eventually they become white as they assimilate to white society. Yeah, that's all. Has it well, been the dream of every immigrant group to shut the door behind them? That's miserable. Yes. I don't know. I'm thinking of that scene from that uh, wondrous writer Mel Brooks when he's trying to get everybody from Rock Ridge together and they bring in the thing is, well, we'll let in the blacks and the Chinese, but not the Irish. And of course, Cleavon Little goes, nope. He's like, oh, all right. And then they win the day. So I'd like to pop it about the, the West Coast issue because I think it's an interesting point that all of a sudden current politics is now coast to coast. You know, if you look at how the West had been thought of politically before that, it was always like the future West, like in the future, whether there's going to be slavery or not slavery, or in the future, is there going to be gold or in the future, are there going to be Indians out there? 
and this is not now all of a sudden something that is affecting people on the West Coast in the here and now is a political issue being considered on a national scale, which shows you that the country is becoming more unified in terms of communication and, and you know, media and culture kind of being connected. And also the rise of the West is being politically powerful, you know, as California starts to grow a little bit as a state here and, and starts to have a little bit more political power. It, it shows kind of, again, the, the nationalization of the United States. Chelsea. Well, I kind of want to build off James's point. If we think about the immigration issue beyond just the the, the Chinese issue, quote unquote, I used quotes there just so everyone. She did the, the finger flexion thing, yes. <laughs> so on radio, the Chinese issue, there's immigration issues happening on the East Coast. And so there's, there is still a motivation and an understanding of, of immigration as being a, a problem and being a, a bad thing, right? And so even though Chinese immigration seems to be a largely West Coast problem, there is still political motivation for passing something against it. I, I wanted to ask, and I'm not sure if our historians would know this, was specifically Chinese immigration an issue on the East Coast? We usually think of that, I feel like, as a West Coast issue. Was that, Building you know, we've got, right, but we've got Arthur, who's from Vermont and made his money in New York. I mean, what, why is that he, Why is that an issue that he takes so hard? I don't know if it's an issue. He, I, it, it was... There were some Chinese immigrants on the East Coast, but the vast majority were on the West Coast. And there had been uh, restrictions against Chinese immigrants in California. There was a very strong anti-Chinese sentiment in California. And this, this kind of bubbles up when Hayes is president and Congress passes a measure to restrict Chinese immigration, which Hayes vetoed. And they were not able to override the veto. And this was also during the Depression. And some people um, were blaming the Chinese for competing. You know, you never hear this anymore. Immigrants <laughs> take jobs from people who were born, who were actually born in the United States. And it was never a problem again. Yeah, <laughs> guys are Americans... really making me work overtime on this one. How could Americans <laughs> not see that the robber barons, never mind, I'm hearing it. Never mind. <laughs> I worked it out. I well, worked here, it out. Well, here's something that That's we why have. America was made in the Gilded Age. That's why we keep saying this refrain over and over again, y'all. The Hitchhike on Chelsea's book club. Here's Paul's book club. Here's a book about, a really good book about the uh, controversy is over Chinese immigration. The Chinese Must Go by Beth Lou Williams. L-E-W-Williams. And so that's what went into minutiae detail about the difference between the Chinese Restriction Act of 1882, which, Gar which you know, Arthur first tried to veto and then signed, and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1888. Lots of nice racist legislation passed during the Cleveland well, administration. And, and let's be clear. It's one thing to characterize it as like, okay, we're going to change some policy and it's racist, but it's just a matter of changing who we let off the boat. There was pretty virulent anti-Chinese rioting and violence yes, against Chinese so. communities in the West that in many ways mirrored, you know, violence against African-Americans in the Southeast where, you know, entire groups were rounded up and if not killed wholesale, then 
many people were killed and the rest were told, you better not show your face here again. And so, yeah, it was, there were some really nasty incidents, I think, that I really had never learned about and had certainly never been taught in school. And it wasn't until I was doing my own research on the subject that I was like, oh, wow, this this really got pretty nasty. One of the other specters raised at the time was human trafficking. Because it was, you know, believed that, you know, Chinese opium, you know, drug lords were sent. And of course, this would never be a problem again. Chinese drug lords were sending Chinese women to serve as prostitutes in San Francisco and corrupt white American manhood. But Paul, if opium's such a problem, why are the Roosevelts selling it? (laughs) You tell me. How shocked would the late Mrs. Arthur be if she caught us sneaking around your office like this? Dearest Nell, may she rest in peace, was unable to satisfy some of my hungers. That's where you come in, my good whore. So where's my payback for vetoing that nasty bill? Aw, don't be so impetuous, Mr. Arthur. You'll be wrapping your lips around your forbidden treats soon enough. Stop teasing me, you insolent whore. Is that a reward in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? Well, all right, Mr. Commander-in-Chief. Feast your eyes. Oh, my word, it's huge. It's, it's longer than a cigar. Tastier, though. Bet you can't get it all in your mouth. Oh, is that a dare, whore? Well, watch this. Why, Mr. Arthur, what a deep throat you have. <clears throat> well, I've swallowed a lot of oysters in my time. Oh. Mm. Mm, that was... Oh, that was sure ecstasy. Is there anything on my chin? Just a drop. Here, use my hanky. Oh, thank you, Senator Hoare. Uh, by the way, why do they call it an egg roll? I, I didn't taste any egg. I believe the natives call it a spring roll. We'll be learning more about Asian cuisine soon, now that you've kept America's gates open to Chinese immigration and trade. Uh, Mr. Arthur, there's a whore here to see you. Oh, the senator is already here, Mr. Phillips. Uh, no, sir. I mean, Mrs. Rosa Hertz, the proprietress of Hertz Rent-A-Girl in New York City. Oh, um, uh, sh- show her in, Phillips, and burn today's appointment book, will you? Already done, sir. Right this way, ma'am. I guess we're about to have a threesome, whore. Oh, that's fine. I'm flexible. Thanks for easing my entrance, Mr. Phillips. Why, Chester Arthur, how long has it been? Oh, Rosa, you're still the belle of the ball. <laughs> well, I earned that title. Ooh, who's your handsome friend? Uh, Mrs. Rosa Hertz, Senator George Hoare of Massachusetts. How do you do, ma'am? Quite well. So is that whore by name or whore by nature? Neither, actually. It's H-O-A-R. Ooh, I like a man who knows the alphabet. Sorry to interrupt, Chester, but I'm here to beg on bended knee that you don't veto the next Chinese immigration bill. But Rosa, that bill was highly discriminatory. As well as detrimental to trade. Don't you lecture me on trade, Georgie boy. It's one of my specialties. Too many immigrants will deflate wages. Now, Rosa, we need Chinese laborers to perform the jobs that Americans refuse to do. Well, that depends on the job now, doesn't it? 
we Republicans in the Senate have already refuted the economic arguments offered by the Working Man's Party. And I'm here for the Working Women's Party. The good time gals in San Francisco will starve if they have to compete with cheap Chinese imports. Mrs. Hertz, am I to understand that you are here to lobby on behalf of an illegal industry? Well, the government has erected all kinds of tariffs to help other professions. Why not the world's oldest? Well, uh, to be fair, Rosa, we do subsidize it rather heavily, with all kinds Mrs. of erections. Mrs. Hertz, don't fall for the hysterics spread by opponents of free trade. If it's free, then it's not trade, Georgia Kins. Besides, those poor Chinese girls aren't much more than slaves. Is that true, Whore? You know I dislike slavery. Mrs. Hertz, the figures don't support that theory. Show me your figures and I'll show you mine. Well, how about this? The Chinese population in America is 95% male, so as you can see, there are almost no prostitutes. You like <laughs> figures? How do you like them figures? You think men can't be prostitutes, Mr. Hall? Don't sell your sex so short. Chesterkins, I don't like to play hardball outside the boudoir, but you forced my hand. Are you familiar with Lysistrata? Uh, no, I, I don't remember her. Is she a Mexican? I believe Mrs. Hertz is referring to the Aristophanes play, in which the ladies of Athens end a war by denying the men of the city certain, uh, favors. You know your way around a stage, Thrust Georgians. Well, what do you say, Chesterfield? Sign that bill, or America's sporting gals will get up and not go down. So be it. If Congress sends me a less restrictive bill concerning Chinese immigration, I'll sign it. I'll take any restrictions I can get. Thanks, Chester baby. Mr. Arthur, this is a betrayal. You've promised the merchants that you wouldn't endanger our open border with China. For God's sake, man, I brought you an egg roll. Which was quite tasty, George. But a man needs many types of rolls, including the type Rosa provides. Oh, don't take it so hard, Georgia Kins. I'll make it up to you. I'll come up to Boston and bake a few beans for you. Very well, then. I'll convey the message to my fellow senators first thing in the morning. No need to rush out of bed tomorrow, Georgie. I'll keep your fellow senators abreast tonight. Arthur was one of our lazier presidents, and but not a bad one, and... Poor bastard got sick with Bright's disease late in his presidency and was didn't live much longer. Not, past not it, late, apparently not late in his presidency, as I'm looking at. Apparently he knew perhaps as soon as he became president that he had this disease that was considered which was considered fatal at the time. And they, you know, the, the, some of the speculation is it's one reason why he bucked a lot of the party. The, the the machines in the party because well what did he have to lose and um, also why he sort of put up a nominal attempt to get renominated but didn't really push it and obviously didn't tell anybody because yeah he died very quickly you know two within two years after he left the presidency he had died of Bright's disease and it looks like he withheld that information uh, 
which allowed him to have, I guess, some semblance of independence from his handlers or uh, at least for a time. And I'm just going to, just as sort of an observation, and again, as people are listening to these podcasts, you're listening to them three separate times. We're sort of discussing three presidents with with Hayes and Garfield and now Arthur. Uh, it's a 12-year period, and on the one hand, when you try to look back on it, who are these guys? There's not a whole lot that seems to be happening. But as we're sort of taking a step back, there's a whole lot happening outside of them, almost in, like to the point, you know, again, with just America is really starting to take shape in a way that some of us would recognize both when we were taking history classes and where we're at right now. Um, and I know historians and we have been taught, I think, in history classes that presidents can shape these things. Well, here are, you know, we've got a 12-year period and maybe another 12-year period to come when we look at the uh, Cleveland and Harrison and uh, Cleveland, Cleveland again, um, where maybe that's not the case. And again, is it the times? Is it the world just happening so fast they don't know what's going on? Is it because they're just such dullards they never would have had a chance to do anything anyway? Um I think that you're you're absolutely asking the right question, but I think that the the answer is really complex because on the one hand, maybe these presidents in the personal policies that they pursued weren't particularly effectual, but I think it's clear that government was changing things. Just just like Chelsea alluded to, government underwriting of railroads made a big difference in terms of the creation of railroads. The government upholding of the gold standard made a big difference in terms of how the financial system of the United States was started and, and who was able to benefit from that. And so it wasn't necessarily always active decision-making. Sometimes it was the failure to make a different choice, but that the role of government is an essential one in the creation of American capitalism in the late 19th century, even if it isn't the president signing like a version of the New Deal into the law, the decisions that they're making or not making are decisions that are responsible or helped the creation of the modern capitalist state. Right. The fact that they're even the fact that the federal government is even weighing in on these things is a is a demarcation from from previous. Right. Which is why going back to Henry Clay and the American system is one of the reasons why the American system never gets off the ground. She said, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> so again, Dr. Norman, thank you again so much. We'll get together with Cleveland and Harrison because after that, we've got another big one. McKinley? Oh, I forgot about McKinley. <laughs> no, no, I want to talk extensively about the decision to go to war in Cuba. Yeah. Right. No, well, it's going to be important. McKinley's going to be important. McKinley, actually, yeah, because be he, but he does That's set the table for everything. Yeah, he does set the table for dirtbag Teddy Roosevelt, a man, the myth, <laughs> the legend. DB Comedy presents the Electables. This episode sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bykowski. 
Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClure. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit's fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.